Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, a history of the Thirty Years' War. So let's get started. Last time we talked about more of the Swedish aspects of their grand plan. This week we finish it up and talk about the slightly changed position of Gustavus going forward. The last aspect of the Swedish strategy plan, whatever you want to call it, was German manpower and collaborators. German manpower was essential to the Swedish military during the Thirty Years' War due to the large number of casualties Gustavus sustained over the two years of campaigning so far. By the end of 1631, he had lost around 50,000 men, when he only had 13,000 native Swedes and Finns in his army. Granted, a lot of them weren't Swedes and Finns, but many of them were, and those were his best troops as they were professionals. Throughout the rest of the war, around one in five men would die in the fighting, lasting no more than four years as soon as they arrived in Germany under the Swedish service. So, if you look at five people, and one is going to be dead by the fourth year of service. He also ran into issues of Swedish and Finnish officers, not performing as well as expected, leaving a need for native German officers who knew the terrain and people. This led to a rise in local leaders stepping up to lead and raise troops. They had the knowledge of local terrain and people, which led them to have an easier time raising money and men, as well as being able to counteract the Catholic operations. Events like capturing Würzburg had convinced many smaller German princes and lords to throw their lot in with Gustavus, and those men flocked to his banner, and despite these men willingly joining his service, these smaller landholders had to give up their autonomy and surrender their men and territory to the Swedes in order to get authority in the Swedish military, or Swedish German military, whatever you're going to call it. The officers there would get officer commissions and small cash rewards if they were lucky, which were generally used to raise regiments of men. Small regiments, but regiments of men. The Swedes raised around 500 German regiments over the course of the war, with around 100 active at most at a time. These were a big boon to the Swedes, as these men would potentially be protecting their homes and rights, as well as being able to fight better in the environment, or at least more aware of the environment. Granted, they weren't as good as the Swedish troops as they were better trained, better equipped, and were being paid as professional soldiers, but it's something to be said about protecting your home versus invading somebody else's. These smaller regiments would then be formed into regional armies, which would cover areas like Franconia, Mainz, Mecklenburg, and Bremen, which would act as reinforcements for the Swedish and as local defense against any Catholic incursions. These armies, however, were not necessarily reliable on their own. They generally numbered around 5,000, which is really too small to do any damage on their own, and they generally had Swedish officers and units as overseers who stayed with them partially to keep them more disciplined and motivated, as well as to be safe from local league attacks. The German forces as a whole grew by 1632, equaling around 140,000 men by the middle of 1632, although that was very spread out, but it wasn't insignificant, and these men would generally not be concentrated in one particular area, with Gustavus generally only having around 16,000 men in his army at a time, usually Germans supporting his professional Swedish troops. These regiments and these men would swear loyalty to Sweden, much of them having, much of them not having a choice, but they would still support him on the basis of continued success. Like I said before, much of these forces were German nobility and princes, and some of them were even former paladins, which gave them a more reason to back the Swedes, as they were still chomping at the bits to get back of the Imperials for the whole war against the paladins stuff. I covered the major backers a couple episodes ago with the big regions like Mecklenburg, 
the major backers I covered in the last couple episodes, but these smaller lords and princes couldn't really cover the resources that the bigger ones could, but they did add up as a whole. The majority of these Protestants were disenfranchised and hoped to profit from the success of the Swedish, both politically and monetarily. Some, like Count Philip Reinhardt of Solms, so they could get rid of the position of the emperor, replacing it with an aristocratic society, which is much more of a council of nobility running the empire rather than one crowned king or emperor, which in today's society wouldn't be much of a difference because it would effectively be the same thing in governance. But back then, there was a difference in that. The emperor would be more of a first among equals than being a legitimate authority that was above everyone else. And on top of all of that, many Protestant leaders hoped to get church lands from their defeated enemies. This was called the Donations, and hundreds of thousands of florins worth of land was taken starting in 1630. The land was taken without compensating the former owners, not that the Swedish and Protestants cared, especially if they were Catholic. This was a repeating pattern, if you guys had noticed, as taking land from people who either were your rivals or you thought it was yours was a way that a lot of people were motivated to join the war on either side. The Protestants were just as guilty of this as the Catholics, which this war was just a mess for everyone. However, not all of these lands were given on the conditions that the person who wanted it wanted it. For example, Kraft of Hohenlohe obtained Elwingen only after he was forced to pay 18,000 dollars by the troops that captured it. And when he had gotten it, many of the assets that had been there had been given to other Swedish officers, along with plenty of documentation and all that sort of stuff lost for local governance. So the local government, in turn, was in chaos, and he had a lot of money from contributions that he had to pay due to the whole monetary system I talked about last week. The Catholic populace was not friendly, and he was forced to rely on outsiders to keep control and get things done. And dealing with his land cost him around 100000 based on the listed costs and contributions he had to pay, which was in the face of the money he already paid to raise three regiments already. So getting his land back was more expensive and put him in further debt than not getting his land. Others didn't get the land they expected, like not getting it at all, which led to disillusionment. And even those who did were similarly disillusioned by the Swedes because of the conditions to get them back, like I listed just before this. Once again, land was a complicated issue, and the expanding war would probably have left a lot of other land in the same sort of chaos. And by 1634, when Elwingen was given to Kraft, the reality of the Swedish politics probably had dulled a lot of the Germans' fervor at the Swedish cause, although they did see the Swedes as the best hope against the League and the Imperial forces. And speaking of the Imperials and their leader, Gustavus was in an interesting political position. The donations were a sign that many thought revealed Gustavus had plans for a larger empire, as they got the lands because of the Swedes, like the nobles got the land from the Habsburgs, which made them loyal to the Swedes and Gustavus. Gustavus is even an anagram of Augustus, which was the name of the first Roman emperor and became the title of every Roman emperor after that. Gustavus even staged a triumphal march into Frankfurt on November 17, 1631, which was the place which was the place where the emperors of the Asia were crowned. And it had become clear that the Swedish king had no reason to keep the old constitution intact, and by right of conquest, he claimed all occupied territories as Swedish fiefs, which threw out any real peaceful negotiations for the time being. Even areas that willingly joined him had to give up their existing oath to the emperor, as Gustavus's oath superseded that, which was also part of any agreement with the imperial cities in the empire that he controlled. In any city that wanted city status that didn't have it, as I talked about before, being a city gave you more rights compared to not being a city, or an imperial city. Gustavus had clearly extended his ambitions from just the Baltic and the coast to eating up half the HRE, and the end of the war was not in sight. He continued to push his influence 
As in 1632, he told all occupied territories and allies to stop paying dues to the Imperials and pay them to Gustavus. And by June, he had even mentioned t- turning all his allies into territories under his absolute control. Not taking by force, but making sure they were not able to break their lines and join the Imperials. There were structures of regional administration called Crees that still existed and were used by Gustavus to help further his goals. And he even put governors in place where there weren't any of those. The Crees were still somewhat independent and had their own stuff. So Gustavus did try to work around them too if they weren't cooperative, as even he didn't have that much reach yet to just get them out of the way. So local structures were used by Swedes to further their dominance, and they kept the local authorities from holding the growing Swedish Empire to account for their actions, which was par for the course for any high nobility in any empire and anyone in power in history in a lot of societies, so nothing new. The Swedes also didn't really respect local boundaries as well. Many towns and districts would be moved around to other territories politically, and these would be done because of rewarding or punishing people, taking away money, giving it to other people who deserved it more, which was more Swedish than HRE or German. There was a body called the High Imperial Court, and there's a German name for it, but I just use the translation because it's a Franken word, so I did not want to deal with that. There was a plan to reorganize this high court, which dealt with arbitration, or disputes and arbitration, that would remove Catholics from any sort of vestige of power from it, which would reduce their power even more in Swedish territory. This was a body that had existed for a century or so, as it was created in 1495 or so, and it was clear that Gustavus would not follow their rules, as he had his own ambitions and he would not be stopped by some foreign body of governance. There was rumors that after Mainz, Oxenstierna, a powerful Swedish noble, would be put as chancellor of the high court, which would go along with the plans of the Swedes to take more and more power from Habsburgs by subverting or sabotaging the existing power structures, which would leave the Habsburgs with only their ancestral lands. This was certainly a far reach, and it wasn't liked by many in the Swedish Empire, actually, as many in Gustavus's inner circle opposed these more severe moves which they were saying was too much too fast. Oxenstierna's younger brother, who was the chief of justice in Sweden, said they should have a moderate peace based on restoring the old balance of the empire before the chaos of all these wars started, which would hopefully create a calm thing which would give them a favorable treaty of a war. He argued that, continuing at the rate they were, there would be endless war in the HRE, which would only be draining and push away allies and friends. And pushing the war further south would just prolong the war, which I agree it would as it will go on longer, but an aggressive push south would just strengthen and harden the Catholic resolve. They would also lose momentum, and this would eventually result in a stalemate, and or they would run themselves further into debt. And on top of this internal conflict in the inner circle of Sweden, many Germans opposed his heavy-handed control. Johann George fought to keep his leading position in Upper Saxony, and the Galef family did the same to keep their influence in Lower Saxony by keeping the Swedes from manipulating the assembly. And areas with larger Catholic populations would make it hard to do anything because the Catholics still controlled the structures of government there even if they were technically loyal to Sweden. A big blow was in Franconia, where a local Lutheran named Margrave Christian of Bayreuth refused to attach himself to a regional army, which then forced the Swedes to make individual agreements with people rather than the local creed as a whole, which would be much simpler. So the Swedes were still in charge, but the more they tried to hold on to power and strengthen it, the more resistance they ran into. Trying to strengthen power so quickly was destined to create a lot of issues in the historically decentralized empire, as even the Habsburgs, who had 
long history in the area, relied on diplomacy and owing power to them as a more stable way to maintain their thing as Daechari was infamously unstable and prone to internal conflict as I talked about throughout this podcast. Gustavus was basically just making issues that would compound as time went on, especially if his image was hurt as he was still the Protestant savior for good or for ill. However, Gustavus was still the undisputed leader of Protestants in Germany, and people didn't rebel against him militarily in large numbers or of significant note, so they clearly still needed him and supported him, if begrudgingly at times. The situation would change and grow as it went on, and and maybe get better, maybe get worse. But for now, we move away from the Swedes and look at the Catholics in the wake of the Swedish success in 1631 and 1632. I want to thank you for listening in, and I hope you're enjoying it. Social media links will be in the description, or in the links themselves. You can email me at 3decot at gmail.com. Reminder that I have a Patreon. Thanks to those who support me. Interview and spread the word. And I'll see you guys next time.